Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be going over an introduction to the book of Romans. And this is pretty important because Romans is Paul's one book where he's not writing for a specific reason. He's not writing to counter some sort of heresy that's popped up. He's not writing to congratulate someone about something. He's he's writing a generic book to a group of people, Christians, in a church he did not found. So in the book of Romans, we find a crucial defense of what Paul's been teaching thus far. It's more drawn out, it's more detailed than his other works, and it tells us a lot about how he argued and what his thought process was. Now let's hear a little bit from Bart Ehrman on the matter. Bart Ehrman, of course, he is a secular scholar. He was a Calvinist back in his high school seminary days, stuff like that. But then he converted, he recanted Christianity, became a secular scholar, and is one of the most popular anti-Christian scholars, Christian critics in the publishing world. But he writes very well. He understands the early culture of Christianity. And let's hear what he has to say about Romans. He says, At least on the surface, Paul does not appear to be writing to resolve problems that he has heard about within the Roman church. The issues that he discusses appear to relate instead to his own understanding of the Christian gospel. This is clearly the case in chapters 1 through 11, but even his exhortations in chapter 12 through 15 are general in nature not explicitly directed to problems specific to the Christians in Rome. Nowhere, for example, does he indicate he has learned of their struggles, that he's writing to convey his apostolic advice. Contrast this to all his other letters. It is possible, then, that he simply wants to expound some of his views and explain why he holds them. This is possible, of course, but why would he want to do for a church he has never seen? You see what Ehrman's saying here? He's saying, you know, all, all Paul's other letters, they talk about certain problems, certain things that he's heard about those churches. These other churches are churches that Paul has founded. He's writing to correct problems in these churches that he's heard about or experienced or thinks needs to be changed. In Romans, we don't find that. He's never visited Rome. He didn't establish this church. And throughout the letter, we actually get the sense that he is expecting a hostile audience within the Romans. The Romans, the Roman Christians, have heard and said and believed things about him that he tries to defend against. And you see this in the nature of how he writes the book. But I'm going to go on with the Ehrman quote. It says, There may be some clues concerning Paul's motivation at the beginning and end of the letter. At the outset, he states that he's eager to visit the church to share his gospel with them. One might think Paul is preparing the Romans for his visit, giving them advance notice about what he's up to. But at the end of his letter, a fuller agenda becomes more evident. Yeah, when we take a look at the end of Romans, especially Romans 15, 23 through 24, Bart Ehrman quotes it. But now with no further place for me in these regions, he's saying basically I am done with this area of ministry. I'm going to go somewhere else. Paul writes, I desire, as I have for many years, to come to you when I go to Spain, for I do hope to see you on my journey and to be sent by you once I've enjoyed your company for a little while. So Paul is hoping to use Rome as a springboard. He's going to go there. He's going to stay there a while. He's going to get funding, and they're going to send him to Spain so he could bring his gospel to Spain. So as such, 
he's writing this letter of introduction to the Romans to get them on his side so that they could accept him as one of them. And we learn from the tone of the letter that they probably have some initial hostility towards him that he's trying to defend himself against. So let's read on on Ehrman. In light of these comments, it appears that Paul is interested in more than simply meeting with these Roman Christians. He evidently wants them to provide support, moral and financial, for his westward mission. Possibly, he would like to use Rome as the base of his operation in the regions beyond. But why would he need to provide such a lengthy exposition of his views in order to get their support? Don't they already know what he is, the apostle to the Gentiles? And wouldn't they readily undertake to provide him with whatever assistance is needed? Those are very good questions by Ehrman. This may be precisely the point. Either the Romans only have a dim knowledge of who Paul is, or even more likely, they have heard a great deal about him, and what they have heard has made them suspicious. If this was the case, or at least if Paul believes that it is, then presumably their suspicions would relate to the issues that Paul addresses throughout the letter. Issues such as whether the Gentiles and Jews can really be thought of as equal before God. And if so, whether God has forsaken his promises that the Jews would be his special people, and whether Paul's law-free gospel to the Gentiles leads to lawless and immoral behavior. Ehrman gets it. This, this is not a letter. This letter of Romans is not a letter like, like the Matt Slicks of the world want to use it as. That It's all about personal salvation to heaven and, and uh, people being chosen from foreknowledge and, and no one being able to do anything against This is not about that. This is about the socioeconomic environment in which Paul lived, in which the Jews were deeply mentally embedded, this idea of Jewish superiority over the Gentiles. Paul was trying to abolish that. And the entire letter reads towards the apology of Paul's specific message. And guess what? The people in Rome would not accept his words. They wouldn't. They'd be hostile to what he's teaching. What he's teaching could almost be considered heresy by believing Christians. These are not people who reject Jesus Christ as Messiah. They accept Jesus Christ as Messiah, but they reject Paul's ministry, which is so far remote from what they're used to, what they know, and it's remote from what Jesus himself preached. Ehrman goes on, and this is all on Ehrman's blog, and it's a gated article, so you have to pay to get a subscription. I think he's given out a few free subscriptions to people who are in need, but th that's where I'm reading this from. I've, I've looked for other works of Ehrman on Romans because it's very interesting to see how critics of Christianity, how they treat Romans. And guess what? It's not in the way that the Calvinists would take it, that the Spurgeons would take it, that the Pipers would take it, that the Slicks of the world would take it. It's not that they tend to understand the cultural context of the letter and they read it on face value without imposing these weird metaphysics that aren't Jewish in origin. Let's go on and let's read Bart Ehrman. The tone and style of this letter support the view that Paul wrote it in order to explain himself to a congregation whose assistance he was eager to receive. When reading through Romans carefully, one gets a sense that Paul is constantly having to defend himself and to justify his views by making careful and reasoned arguments. See, for example, 3.8, 6.1, 15, 7.1, etc. Moreover, he makes this defense 
in a neatly crafted way following a rhetorical style known in antiquity as the diatribe. This involved advancing an argument by stating a thesis, having an imaginary opponent raise possible objections to it, then providing answers to those objections. This is very important to understand. Paul had his critics. He had been through debates about his gospel, and he had been through defending his gospel to all these people throughout his entire ministry. And so when he is bringing up possible objections throughout the books of Romans, he's representing how people respond to what he's saying. People say that you're teaching a lawless gospel. He responds to that. People say that you're just lying to the advancement of Christ. And he says, well, if my lies are to the advancement of Christ, so, so what? Paul is responding to his critics, critics that he has encountered and critics which he presumes are in Rome at this time, at this church he's never visited, a church probably founded by Peter, probably founded by members of the 12 disciples who are going to be hostile to this Gentile message that Paul continually preached. What's Paul's ministry? That the Jews are equal to the Gentiles. The Jews reject this. And to be clear, these are not atheist Jews. These are not traditional Jewish Jews who believe in Old Testament theology to the exclusion of Jesus. These are Messiah-worshipping Jesus-worshipping Jews that are rejecting Paul. And we see these people surge again and again. In Acts 15, we find Paul in Galatia. And who comes? People from the 12 disciples. And they start disputing with Paul. And the people that Paul is ministering to start to use the other disciples' authority over Paul's. Why? Because these are people directly from James, the brother of Jesus, and the apostles who have lived their lives with Jesus. So they're overriding Paul's message. So what do they have to do for resolution? They take the questions and they bring those questions to Jerusalem. And then Paul has to argue his own case to the 12 disciples. Why weren't they already teaching what Paul was teaching? That's the question. Why is this matter only being considered now? And what was the solution? The solution is not that the Jews will stop following the law. The solution is that the Gentiles would follow. They don't have to follow the entire law, but there are certain tenets of the law that they should follow, but nothing else is really applicable. And so this resolution is made in Acts 15. How long after, how long after Jesus has died and risen again before this issue comes up? This was not an issue in Jesus's ministry. Jesus was not teaching Jewish Gentile equality. This is something specific to Paul. And Paul talks about that, this as his calling. This is his gospel to the Gentiles. And the Jews rejected it. Jewish Christians. In Acts 21, we find Jews, and these Jews are zealous for the law. And they're Jewish Christians, and they want to kill Paul. Try reading Romans, and then try reading it in those two different mindsets. Is Paul trying to give us a personal guide to individual salvation and just talking about theology? He's, this is just a theology letter to an audience who wants to learn about theology. Or is this a defense of Jewish Gentile equality, something his audience would not accept? Something that they didn't already believe? Something that they would be hostile to? And you're going to find that the way that Paul writes his hyperbolic language, people being dead and trespasses and sins, these are hyperboles 
that are being used to emphasize his points. And they're not necessarily to be taken literally or as, as forcibly as the Calvinists would like to take them. Paul was trying to convince people through strong terms of certain messages. So I guess some questions to the Matt Slick types of the world. Did the audience of Rome accept Paul's message? Did they already believe Paul's message? Who founded the Church of Rome? Were these people Christians? Was this message preached before Paul? By whom? Why wasn't Paul accepted throughout the book of Acts by believing Jews? What of the continuous references throughout the book of Romans to national Israel versus the Gentiles? Why is there this continual contrast of people groups, of nations, if this is about individual specific salvation being selected for since all eternity to a life in heaven? That's not what this is about. That's not how someone trying to take this book seriously is going to approach this book. And secular scholars like Bart Ehrman do not approach it that way. And so now let's turn to a Christian, Peter Enns. And Peter Enns is a Christian, and I'm not super familiar with Peter Enns' work. I've read his free chapter that we link to on God is Open from The Bible Tells Me So. I've read that. I'm familiar with that. I've read a few of his blog posts. But the reason I'm quoting Enns is because Enns is a scholar, and what he says about Romans mirrors what I've been saying about Romans for a while and mirrors what uh, N.T. Wright writes about Romans. He's a scholar and he has legitimate beliefs about the book of Romans. So I'm not just way off track here when I'm talking about these things. And here's what Enns writes, and this is on his blog. Here we have Paul writing a letter to a church he has neither founded nor even visited and that has significant Jewish population. And he says things like the following. Gentiles may be sinners, but Jews are known better off in God's eyes. You understand, that's, that's going to be scandalous to the Jews. Jews and Gentiles are in the same boat as far as God is concerned because both are enslaved to the power of sin. Both equally fall short of God's glory, and both equally need Jesus, not Torah, to defeat that power. Again, these are going to be controversial beliefs. The Jews aren't going to buy that. The Jews think they are the special people. They are the chosen people, and any attempt to say that they are equal to the Gentiles, that's going to be almost a heresy. This decentering of Torah to allow Gentiles to become equal partners with Jews in Israel's story, although appearing to be an unexpected move, has actually been God's plan all along, beginning with Abraham. You could see why that would be incredible, as in unbelievable, to Jewish Christians. Neither circumcision nor maintaining food laws both of which are commandments to Israel, remain necessary for God's people. And we see some arguments against this in Revelation when churches are being condemned. Some of it is because they're not following these dietary laws. Those whose conscience tells them that they need to maintain food laws may continue to do so, but rather than being praised as obeying scripture, these believers are weak. Uh, That's funny. That's funny. Paul insults these guys. As we, he almost uses an ad hominem to undermine these people who are very stuck up on these food laws. He calls them weak. These believers are weak in their faith as opposed to those who are strong, those who understand that no foods are unclean. And the last point Peter Enns points out 
is neither the weak nor the strong are to judge each other for love and unity among the people of God take priority over whether Israel's ancient practices continue to be maintained. These points are Paul's letter. These are the major themes of Paul's letter. These are, this is what Paul is trying to teach the Romans. And Peter ends. He understands that the Jews, the Jewish Christians in Rome, they're not going to be happy with this letter to them. And so he writes what I think is a very generous response. I think their response would be a little bit more hostile than what Enns writes. But Enns puts himself in the shoe of Jewish Christians in Rome and writes a return letter from their perspective. And I'm going to read that because it tells you a lot about the mentality of the people to whom Paul was writing. And we could get this mentality by how Paul writes his letter. He reveals to us what his audience is already thinking. Dear Paul, we read your letter with great interest and it sparked no little amount of commotion among your fellow Jews. Have you lost your mind? We believe in Jesus as do you, and like you, we are still scratching our heads a bit about why our Messiah came in humility and weakness, even dying a criminal's death, and then he was raised. You actually helped us quite a bit on these things, especially early on in your letter, and we much, much appreciate that. But Paul, you're Jewish. You're one of us. Do you really think that the God of our fathers would simply reverse course and expect us to figure out that Jesus, the Galatian, brought an end to our ancient traditions, especially given how, according to the stories we've heard, Jesus himself has never said any of what you're saying here. That's important to note, by the way. Jesus did not preach what Paul is preaching here. Jewish-Gentile equality, apart from the law, was not preached by Jesus. We've never met, though your reputation precedes you. We believe that you are an apostle, but do you really think that we should just take your word for it? that we've all known is now at best an add-on and at worst a hindrance to true faith in the God of our fathers. And we appreciate how fervently and creatively you cite scripture to support your point. But don't you think you took your creative readings of scripture a bit far? Was obedience to the Torah really never central to the Lord's overall plan? We've read our scripture cover to cover many times and we can't find where God even hints at that idea. Your reading of the story of our father Abraham to marginalize Torah keeping is way over the top, and your handling of the Psalms and the prophets to show how the Lord has always elected Gentiles is, well, you might as well say that there's no real advantage at all to being a Jew, like we're all one big mistake. You try to get out of that implication a couple of times in your letter. You sense the dilemma, but frankly, you don't do a very good job of talking your way out of it. And then, towards the end of your letter, when you talk about clean and unclean foods, which seems to be the real point of your letter, you call weak those who have courage and faithfulness amid our pagan culture to maintain God's holy laws given by him to Moses on Mount Sinai, and you call others strong for not doing it. What's up with that? Paul, we cannot stress this enough. You can't just pick and choose what parts of scripture you think are worth holding on to. After all, if everyone did that, there'd be chaos. Where does it end, Paul? Once you start denying one part of the scripture, there's no logical reason to deny anything else. And then what happens to the authority of the scripture? You can't do this sort of thing with God's word, and you can't claim that God is telling you to deny what God has told us from ancient days up to now. We respect you as our brother, Paul, but when you finally pay a visit, 
which we hope will happen in the not too distant future, we'd like to sit down with you and hear from you more clearly your reasoning process in all of this, exactly how Jesus' death and resurrection, which we firmly believe, leads you to draw the conclusion that God is turning his back on the very traditions he commanded. So those are our main concerns. If in the meantime you decide to write back, could you please work on writing shorter sentences and maybe not breaking off in mid-sentence to follow another train of thought? That would help a lot. We'd also appreciate it if you use certain key words a bit more consistently, like faith, righteousness, and law. We see some ambiguity here, and it's already caused us no end of debate. I like that last part. Paul does not use his words consistently. He seems to use them to fit his argument where they apply. So when a Calvinist says, oh, Paul says that we were dead over here, and dead means you know, like a dead body, you can't move... Paul uses different words with different meanings to different effect in different parts of his writing. He doesn't use dead to always mean the same thing throughout. And you can't make that claim. And you can't claim that you have the the monopoly on the knowledge of what those sentences mean. Paul doesn't write like that, which allows you to make those assumptions. And when you're reading like that, you're not using basic reading comprehension. And that's my main problem with the Calvinist types who firmly state what they believe these verses mean and there's just no backing with common reading sense they don't use common sense when reading the bible they don't and they're not gracious either these people are not gracious they don't say well that could be an alternative meaning but i think it more probably means this per the context they don't do that instead they're militant about their own reading to the exclusion of all others in in an entire book which uses various meanings for various words throughout to make different arguments and different nuances. I'm going to steal a phrase from John Robinson in another context, but these Calvinists who read Romans, they come to it from a tyranny of unexamined assumptions. It's just assumption compounded on assumption, and they're not reading it in context. They're not reading it in the historical context. They're not putting themselves in the mindset of the listener. They're not even placing this in the context of what's going on in Acts. Who's being written to? What's the time frame? When do these teachings arise? Why don't the people already know these teachings? They don't use critical thinking to examine Romans. And it bugs me. And I might be a little heated about it, just the way that they treat Romans. Some resources real quick on Romans. You could turn to N.T. Wright's lectures on Romans. N.T. Wright seems to understand what's going on in Romans. I also have a translator's handbook on Paul's letter to the Romans by Newman and Nita. I also have the letter to the Romans by William Barclay. And reading through Romans by C.R. Hume. I I tend to like the C.R. Hume books. I found them at uh, Bargain Bookstore sometime in the past. He doesn't seem to be like super famous. But I do like his books and how he treats the various books of the Bible as he goes through and explains what's happening. I also really like the Read Scripture series, Letter to the Romans. I just always Google Romans sketchbook and it brings me right there. And it goes through Romans chapter by chapter, the main themes and how it fits together as a whole. And they are pretty good as well. Those are YouTube videos. They're pretty quick clips, so you could watch them and get some basic understanding. And there's different ones on Romans. There's one with a main overview, and there's ones that break down the individual chapters a little bit better. 
But this podcast is just an introduction to Romans. We're familiarizing the audience with uh, basic themes, basic statements, why the letter's written, to whom it's written, what was their mindset, and how Paul wrote the letter. We talked about his style in which he sets up these imaginary critics, these critics who he's probably experienced throughout his career, and also how he kind of goes on the rabbit trails. The last article that we're going to be looking at today is also by Peter Enns, and I like the title of this one. Just brace yourselves. This is entitled, Paul, it looks like he's sort of winging it. This is about Romans. This is about Romans. People think that like Romans is this intense theological treatise, and Peter Enns is coming and saying, it looks like he just kind of rabbit trails. He doesn't quite defend his points accurately and it's just like he's winging it he's just kind of making it up as he goes along arguing points which there's valid counter arguments too that his audience is probably going to come up with and he gives a few examples in his article let's read them here he says as i read romans i don't walk away thinking my what a carefully planned out letter i think more paul's winging it I know that might not seem very reverent, especially since Romans is often thought of as the primal example of Paul as it, at his difficult yet nevertheless logically consistent best, where he once and for all lays out the basics of the gospel for all to hear for all time. Not that Romans is a jumbled mess. May it never be. See what I did there? But to me, Romans reads more like Paul is in creative problem-solving mode for Roman Christians facing a pressing problem how Jews and Gentiles make up one people of God. Then Paul sitting in a study writing a theological treatise intended for a wider publication. Here's what I mean. Look at how Paul uses the Old Testament, which he does throughout the letter. It doesn't take long before you get the impression that Paul is riffing. For example, Abraham was declared righteous by faith, Genesis 15, before the command to to circumcision, Genesis 17, and long before the law of Moses. Hence, according to Paul, Abraham models that it's always been about faith and not about keeping the law as the mark of being a true people of God, Romans 4. This is somewhat of a forced, selective reading of the Abraham story, especially as he is held as a law keeper before Moses in Genesis 26, 4 through 5. In previous podcasts, in previous podcasts we've talked about this theme of New Testament near-quoting of the Old Testament where the New Testament writers would use the Old Testament, but they would change key words and phrases to read them in a new light to be applicable to what's happening now. And Paul does this. And the Abraham example is a good one. This one, I'm going to skip ahead in the article some. This one is incredibly interesting. And he, this one's critical. Paul claims all along Gentiles have been called by God right alongside Jews and supports this claim by a string of Old Testament citations. Romans 9, 25 through 29. But those passages from Hosea and Isaiah are not referring to Gentile inclusion, but restoration of repentant Israel. Skipping ahead. In Romans 11, 26 through 27, Paul cites Isaiah 59, 20 through 21, but changes one crucial word to allow him to make his theological point. In context, Isaiah speaks of God, the deliverer, coming to Zion, Israel, to deliver them from Babylonian captivity. Paul, however, uses this passage to speak of a different kind of deliverance that will come not to Zion, but out of Zion, meaning, I think, that the deliverance of both Jews and Gentiles originates 
with a Jewish Jesus. And Paul does this. Paul is not teaching standard Jewish Christian theology. He's using Old Testament to support this new gospel of Jewish Gentile equality. And he changes words, he changes phrases, he changes key meanings to fit his gospel. It's no wonder then that some scholars see the book of James as an attack on Paul's ministry, on Paul's gospel. So Paul's walking around using Abraham of an example of lawlessness or no Torah law. And what does James do? He uses it right back against Paul in favor of law keeping. Some people think it's a passive aggressive attempt to override the teachings of Paul. One example of a scholar who believes this is Rita Aslan. We're getting towards the end of our time, but Peter Enns hits it on the head. Romans is a book that is meant to counter common prevailing ideas about Jewish Gentile dynamics. Enns writes, Paul appeals to the Old Testament in order to support what is hardly an obvious notion to the Jews at the time, that Jesus, a crucified and risen son of a working class family, is the long hope for a Jewish Messiah and that Gentiles as Gentiles are full and equal partners along with Jews in this messianic age, meaning the only requirement is faith, trust in Jesus and not zeal for Torah. Romans 10, 2 through 4. When reading Romans, put yourself in the shoes of a hostile audience. Try to think what they're thinking. Think what their reaction is to this newfound gospel, this newfound message of Jewish Gentile equality that they hadn't believed before, they hadn't been taught before, and they're newly encountering. Also think about Paul's arguments. What is Paul's goals? What is he trying to achieve? What is he trying to teach them? What's the occasion for his letter? When you're reading any of Paul's letters, those are the same types of things that should be going through your head. What is he writing? To whom is he writing? What's his points and what does the audience currently believe? These are just the basics of reading comprehension and it's good to apply to all of Paul's letters. If you have any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 